everybody welcome to the 70th episode of our world news podcast this podcast along with all of our other news episodes are part of atlas news check out the lethal minds journal a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journal's bulletin from the borderlands a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethal minds journal substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or analyze educate.substack.com all those links can be found in the show notes below and if you choose to support us on any of those platforms you get a few perks so please take a look at that we appreciate all the support you guys throw our way and with that being said we'll head into the news All right, just to get started here, a quick note, you guys have helped us reach over 30,000 downloads and 1,700 followers on Spotify, so thank you very much for all your support. We're going to start off with Europe and Eurasia, looking at the Russo-Ukrainian War. On the 6th, former People's Deputy of Ukraine, Ilya Kriya, was killed in Odizovo in Moscow Oblast in Russia. Kiva was a Ukrainian lawmaker until March 2022. He moved to Russia about a month before the invasion began, and he was deprived of his mandate after voicing support for the Russian invasion and charged with high treason. After that, he asked Russian President Vladimir Putin for a political asylum. He was found dead at his home with multiple gunshot wounds. Ukrainian outlets cited unnamed sources and claimed that Ukrainian intelligence services were responsible for his death. After the killing, the spokesman for the military's main directorate of intelligence said that Kiva was, quote, one of the biggest scumbags, traitors, and collaborators, end quote, and said his death was, quote, justice. Since the invasion began, the security services of Ukraine, otherwise known as the SBU, has carried out multiple operations inside Russia, including targeted assassinations inside Moscow Oblast itself. Moving on to France, we have some updated info on the attacker in the December 2nd stabbing spree near the Eiffel Tower. The man, known as Armand R., is 26 years old, and he is the child of Iranian immigrants. He's a French citizen. At age 18, he converted to Islam, and from 2016 to 2020, he served four years in prison for attempting to travel to Syria with the intention of joining ISIS. Authorities say that he was supposed to be following psychiatric treatment and was also under government surveillance from intelligence agencies. Three of his associates, including family members, were detained for questioning. He killed a nurse from Germany, who is actually a dual German and Philippines citizen. He also injured a French man and a British man. This attack came less than two months after a teacher in the French city of Arras was stabbed to death, prompting France to deploy thousands of troops across the country. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific, looking at Japan, we have an update on the U.S. Air Force CV-22 Osprey crash. It happened a couple weeks ago. The Air Force has confirmed that all eight airmen on board that Osprey that crashed off the coast of Japan have died. They are Major Jeffrey T. Hunterman, Major Eric V. Spenlove, Major Luke A. Unrath, Captain Terrell K. Brayman, Tech Sergeant Zachary E. LaVoy, Staff Sergeant Jacob N. Gallier, Staff Sergeant Jake M. Turnage, and Senior Airman Brian K. Johnson. 
The U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force Special Operations Command have all ordered operational standdowns of their Osprey fleets after this crash. Preliminary investigations indicate that the crash was caused by a material failure. Moving on to Central Asia and the Middle East, we haven't reported on Afghanistan in a while, so we just got a small update. Clashes and attacks are still fairly common in the country, even though we haven't reported on them. On December 7th, the Afghanistan Freedom Front claimed an attack on the Taliban governor's office in Panjir province, claiming to kill at least four Taliban members. That includes two of the governor's guards. Moving on to the Israel-Hamas war, we got reported casualties. Again, these are reported, not confirmed. Again, got to keep in mind uh, the source where it's coming from. Gaza, this is coming from the Gazan Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas. You have 17,177 killed 46,000 injured. For Israel, you have 1,361 killed, 8,736 injured, and that does include the casualties that the IDF has taken inside Gaza during their operation. Looking at those casualties inside Gaza, the IDF has taken 93 uh, KIAs killed in action and at least 260 wounded. Again, I cannot find a good number for wounded. That is over a month old at this point, but I just can't find a better number. Looking at the West Bank, you have 266 killed, 3,366 injured. The vast majority of those are Palestinians. Looking at Lebanon, you have 122 killed. Syria, you have 30 killed. In Egypt, you have nine injured. That gives us a total of 18,956 killed and 58,102 people injured for the conflict, which is just over two months old. Over the week, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter, which forces the Security Council to address a specific situation, in this case, Gaza. On Friday, the Council voted on a call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and also a call to release all hostages. 13 countries voted yes, one country voted no, and one abstained. The abstention was the United Kingdom, the no vote was the United States. That one vote caused an automatic veto because the U.S. is a permanent member on the Security Council. Thus, they have automatic veto authority, as does the U.K., France, China, and Russia. The New York Times recently came out with a report claiming that Israel knew the details of Hamas's October 7th attack for at least a year before it happened, I should say they knew the details of the battle plans, but not the specific date that it was going to happen. This article alleges that, at least. According to this report, which again is not confirmed, New York Times recently took some flack with the uh, hospital reporting about that hospital that was allegedly bombed by uh, the Israeli Air Force. Of course, we know that that now was not the case, but the New York Times kind of took the reports at face value and reported them as confirmed. They took a lot of flack for that, rightfully so. So I think they're trying to be a little more cautious with this report. So again, this is not confirmed. According to this report, the Israeli military and intelligence dismissed Hamas's battle plans as aspirations that they could not execute. The New York Times made this claim based off emails, documents, and interviews. Hamas's battle plans were detailed in a 40-page document codenamed Jericho Wall by Israeli authorities. It detailed an assault designed to overwhelm Israeli security forces near the border with Gaza and take over towns and cities in the area. The report says that Hamas followed the 40-page battle plans with, quote, shocking precision. 
The document also had sensitive details regarding the size and location of Israeli military units, communications, and other security infrastructure, which raises questions as to how Hamas got that information. After the document was obtained, an assessment from the Gaza division said that Hamas's intentions weren't clear and could not be determined if the plans had been accepted by Hamas. In July, an analyst with Unit 8200 of the Israeli Intelligence Corps warned her superiors that Hamas had conducted a training exercise that appeared to mirror Jericho Wall. The New York Times claims that an intercepted email shows that a colonel with the Gaza division dismissed this analyst's claims. In the email exchange, the analyst wrote, quote, I utterly refute that the scenario is imaginary, end quote, and, quote, it is designed to start a war. It is not just a raid on a village, end quote. The October 7th attack is regarded as the worst Israeli intelligence failure since the Arab-Israeli War in 1973. You may know that as the Yom Kippur War. Unnamed officials told the New York Times that the government refused to believe that Hamas had the capability to carry out such an attack. It is expected that the Israeli government will establish a commission to investigate the failures to prevent the October 7th attack. That commission will likely be formed once the war is over. As of right now, it isn't clear if Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or other high-level political leaders were made aware of the Jericho Wall document. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 61. The vast majority of those were Palestinians that have been killed in Gaza. That number is 54. Additionally, four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists have been killed as well. In northern Gaza, the IDF is focusing their efforts on Jabalia and the Jabalia refugee camp to the north. They are facing some heavy resistance there. They are still clearing Gaza City as well, though. The IDF has begun its operation in southern Gaza as well. That is in full swing. They have pushed into the center of Khan Yunus, which is the second largest city in Gaza and is also a major stronghold for Hamas. Two prongs have been moving on the city from the northeast and the east. They claim that the city has been surrounded, but no open source evidence supports that right now. So we're kind of standing by on those claims. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah have resumed since the end of that ceasefire with Hamas, and they have continued since that ceasefire ended. Yemen-based Houthi rebels have continued their activity in the region. On Sunday, December 3rd, two commercial ships came under attack from drones and missiles in the Red Sea off the coast of Yemen. Unity Explorer, a ship owned by British company Anglo Eastern, was badly damaged, and Number 9, a ship owned by Israeli shipping company Zim, was lightly damaged. Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Carney came under attack by drones and missiles launched from Houthi-controlled territory while responding to a distress call from one of the vessels. The munitions were engaged and destroyed. No damage or casualties were caused, according to the Pentagon. The Houthis claimed the attacks on the two commercial ships, but not the Carney. While Carney has engaged Houthi munitions prior to this incident, this is the first Houthi attack directly targeting U.S. Navy assets since the Israel-Hamas war began. Roughly 140 other people are still being held hostage in Gaza. So far, over 100 hostages have been released. This includes three Americans. Additionally, multiple hostages have been found deceased inside Gaza, and at least two hostages have been rescued. The ceasefire deal with Hamas is what saw the majority of these hostages being released. A separate deal between Hamas and Egypt saw a number of non-Israeli hostages released as well. Those are mostly citizens of Thailand and the Philippines. 
Since October 17th, there have been at least 84 drone and rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. The attacks resumed soon after the expiration of the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The Pentagon has confirmed at least 66 casualties so far. This includes at least 25 traumatic brain injuries. Thankfully, all 66 have since returned to duty. U.S. military has launched six strikes in response to these attacks. That sixth response came on December 3rd when U.S. airstrikes in Kirkuk, Iraq, targeted and killed five members of Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujaba, an Iranian-backed Shia militia in Iraq. Those militants were preparing to launch rockets at U.S. forces. And on the day prior, militants with the Islamic resistance of Iraq claimed a rocket attack against U.S. forces at Erbil Airport. So far, the U.S. has launched one response for every 14 attacks against its forces in the region. Allied naval forces in the region, thank you to Ian Ellis and Intel Schizo on Twitter for their infographics. The Israeli Navy has three corvettes and one missile boat operating south of Cyprus. The, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group is in the Persian Gulf. The Bataan Amphibious Readiness Group is in the Red Sea. Five ships are south of Cyprus on humanitarian missions. Those are two French, two Italian, and one Indonesian ship. British Littoral Response Group South is currently near Cyprus as well. The UN's interim force in Lebanon has seven ships in the eastern Mediterranean. U.S. patrol forces Southwest Asia and Task Force 52 are in the Gulf of Oman. Combined, Task Force 151 is off the coast of Yemen, and there are at least 33 other ships in the region, including U.S. ships, that are not assigned to a task force or a mission tied to the situation in Gaza. We will take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back with Africa. Just got a quick Sudan update. Fighting between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces continues. The war so far forced over 6.1 million people from their homes. 1.3 million of those have fled to other countries. Additionally, between 9 and 10,000 have been killed. The U.S. State Department has determined that both the SAF and the RSF have committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. This includes the abuse and killing of detainees and both sides committing sexual violence against women across the country. The department has also determined that the RSF specifically has committed ethnic cleansing against the Mosulid community. Moving on to the America's Bulletin from the Borderlands released on the 1st, we covered a major player in the Sinaloa cartel being arrested and the possibility of a new war in South America. Looking at Peru on December 6th, former President Alberto Fujimori was released from prison after the Constitutional Tribunal ordered his release when they reinstated a 2017 pardon for him. The 85-year-old Fujimori was president from 1990 to 2000 and is regarded by some as a dictator. He's actually still a highly divisive figure in Peru. In 2009, after a long legal battle involving Japan and Chile, Fujimori was convicted of human rights abuses in connection with the Burritos Altos and La Puntata massacres by government forces that killed 25 people, in addition to other abuses. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison in 2017. President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski 
pardoned him after his son, Congressman Kenji Fujimori, helped Kaczynski survive a impeachment vote. The Supreme Court overturned that pardon in 2018, but he is now a free man. Looking at Venezuela on the third, a Venezuelan man in Guarico was arrested after authorities found that he was hiding an R-73 Air-2 air missile at his home. The R-73 is fired from a Russian-made Su-30 fighter jet, which Venezuela does fly. Also, the man lived near the main base in El Sombrero, although it is not clear how he got that missile. On the 6th, the government arrested a figure of the political opposition against the ruling Socialist Party. That figure is Roberto Abdul, who was part of the commission that planned the recent opposition primary for next year's presidential election. The Attorney General, Tarek William Saab, said that the arrest warrants have been issued for him and three other opposition-linked persons. Those are three staffers for the presidential campaign of opposition nominee Marina Corrida Machado. The four have been accused of treason, conspiracy, and money laundering in connection with the referendum on Essequibo on December 3rd. In October, the Biden administration made a deal with Maduro in exchange for the easing of some major sanctions. President Maduro agreed to allow opposition candidates to take part in next year's presidential election, and the country was also supposed to release political prisoners, including some unjustly imprisoned Americans. As of right now, Venezuela has not made good on either of those conditions. For some reason, the Biden administration gave Venezuela until the end of November to comply with the terms of the deal. The end of November has passed. Venezuela continues to not abide by the deal. And actually, after the deal went into effect, they arrested another American Savoy Wright for unknown reasons. His family still has no idea why he was arrested. Maduro's government is continuing to imprison people linked to the opposition, regardless of sanctions have not been put back into place. Looking at the situation between Venezuela and Guyana, on December 3rd, as I alluded to, Venezuela held a referendum on whether or not the country should annex the region of Essequibo in Guyana, which makes up about two-thirds of Guyana. There's been a dispute over who owns Essequibo for hundreds of years. This goes back to when the area was a Dutch colony and Venezuela was controlled by the Spanish. We, the International Criminal Court on December 1st ordered Venezuela to not hold the December 3rd referendum, but since the ICJ falls under the UN, the order is not really enforceable. Venezuelans were asked five questions relating to the annexation of Essequibo, and each question received no less than 95.4% support according to the government's claims, meaning that Venezuela has officially annexed Essequibo, even though it does not currently control that territory. Venezuela claims that over 10 million people voted. That is highly exaggerated, most likely as many poll stations observed a fraction of registered voters showing up throughout the day, but yeah, whatever. Fearful of a Venezuelan invasion of Guyana, Brazil has been deploying forces to its border area with both nations, including dozens of armored vehicles. Additionally, U.S. Southern Command, SOUTHCOM, has been conducting flight operations with the Guyana Defense Force inside the country's airspace. President Maduro tapped Major General Alexis Rodriguez Caballo to be in charge of the new state, Essequibo. Rodriguez is the commanding officer of the National Capital Integral Strategic Defense Region, say that three times fast, similar to the National Capital Region here in the U.S. He was also once the commanding general of the Venezuelan army. Maduro has also ordered state-owned oil company PDVSA and state-owned mining company CDG to establish divisions for the new state. And also on December 6th, President Nicolas Maduro gave offshore 
oil producers, including ExxonMobil, 90 days to cease operations off the coast of Essequibo. And also on the 6th, a Bell 412 helicopter belonging to the Guyana Defense Force went missing around 0923 local time. There were three crew members and four passengers on board, and the helicopter went missing after engaging its emergency transponder about 30 kilometers east of the border with Venezuela. The search for the aircraft was initially hindered by weather in the area. Two crew members were finally found and rescued on the 8th. The other five personnel on board were confirmed to be deceased. Right now, there's no indication that the helicopter was downed by the Venezuelan military. Looking at Costa Rica on December 7th, authorities reported the arrest of a Somali man affiliated with Al-Qaeda-linked Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab. Ali Abdenor was arrested on November 30th, roughly 10 kilometers from the border with Panama in an area known as the Temporary Care Center for Migrant Persons. Buses full of migrants coming from the Darien Gap enter this area every day. Authorities at the center found that Abdenor had an international search alert issued by the FBI against him. He was transferred to the capital of San Jose, and he will be subjected to deportation. Moving on to the U.S., got our presidential race update. These are poll averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 38. His disapproval is at 55. Both of those remain the same from last week. Looking at Trump's favorability, he is at 42%. His unfavorability is at 53. Both of those remain the same as well. Looking at the Democratic primary, Biden is at 66. He is down one point. Marion Williamson is at eight. She is up one point. And Congressman Dean Phillips is at 5%. He is up one point as well. Looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 59%. He's down one point. DeSantis is at 13. He's up one. And Nikki Haley is at 12. She is up three points. Also, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum dropped out of the Republican race. He was polling at about 1% and cited primary debate rules as a reason for his low polling numbers. Moving on, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced that he will retire from Congress at the end of the year and he will not see out the rest of his term. With New York Representative George Santos being kicked out of the House last week, this will give Republicans a very slim majority of only two seats when 2024 starts. Moving on, President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, has received a new federal indictment in California in relation to not paying taxes while living, quote, an extravagant lifestyle, end quote. In addition to the federal firearms charges he is already facing in Delaware, Biden is now facing three felonies and six misdemeanors in this new indictment. Special Counsel David Weiss, who is also the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, says that Biden's, quote, spent millions of dollars on an extravagant lifestyle rather than paying his tax bills, end quote. From 2016 to 2019, Biden owed $1.4 million in unpaid taxes. The indictment claims that he spent millions of dollars on drugs, strippers, luxury hotels, and exotic cars. The felonies he is facing include filing a false return and tax evasion, and the misdemeanors include failure to file and failure to pay. If convicted, he could face a maximum of 17 years. Moving on, Victor Manuel Rocha has been charged with spying on behalf of Cuba for decades. Who is Rocha, you may ask? He is the former U.S. ambassador to Bolivia. The 73-year-old is accused by federal prosecutors of providing Cuba with intelligence since 1981, which is the same year Cuban-born Rocha started working for the State Department. I'm sorry, not Cuban-born, Colombian-born. 
that's the same year he started working for the State Department and three years after he became a naturalized citizen. Court documents claim that Rocha said that his work for Cuba, quote, strengthened the revolution, and he referred to the U.S. as, quote, the enemy. Attorney General Merrick Garland called this case, quote, one of the highest reaching and longest lasting infiltrations, end quote, of the U.S. government by a foreign agent. During his time in the State Department, he served in postings in Argentina, Honduras, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic before serving as ambassador to Bolivia from 1999 to 2002. He also served at the National Security Council for a bit, and since beginning his work at the State Department, he has taken multiple trips to Cuba. In late 2022, he was contacted on WhatsApp by an undercover FBI agent claiming to be a member of Cuba's intelligence services. Rocha met with the agent multiple times and detailed his time working on behalf of Cuban intelligence. Prosecutors say that he celebrated and bragged about his activity. He also allegedly used the term we to describe Cuba and himself and said that he, quote, wanted to protect what we have done. Documents also claim that he was in charge of Cuba's Operation Scorpion in 1996, which was the shooting down of two unarmed civilian planes over international waters, killing four people. Those planes belong to Brothers to the Rescue, which is a Miami-based nonprofit that aids Cuban dissidents and migrants. He is also accused of making false statements to the U.S. government and making false statements to obtain travel documents. The documents do not detail any information that he may have given to the Cuban government or how the FBI came to suspect him. In addition to his work at the State Department and the National Security Council, he has also served as an advisor to U.S. Southcom and is also on the board of the Council for Foreign Relations and the International Advisory Board for the University of Miami. He is currently in federal custody. That is all I have for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We are also on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again, Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Substack. You can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well, and I will see you guys soon.